know what to let go of in business and know what to really champion. Hello and welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. Today's leader, John Pearson, the CEO of DHL Express. He'll talk about keeping things simple and keeping thousands of staffers focused during the pandemic. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. You'll only ever be known for a few things. So don't try and do a hundred because someone will know you for nothing. John Pearson is the CEO of DHL Express, a division of the massive global logistics company Deutsche Post DHL Group. In John's 35 years at the company, he's moved 15 times and been responsible for each continent. But when he started fresh out of school in 1986, he didn't know where Bahrain, the place where he'd be stationed, was. But he had a curiosity about the world, and he's since transformed that into an appreciation for globalization and how trade connects the world. The world is more connected and we have a once in a lifetime opportunity to be more connected and learn from this. John is a fan of simplicity and focus. And that's especially important in a place where thousands of people work in concert to move millions of packages every day. He'll share with Meet the Leader the effective trainings and strategies DHL uses to keep communications clear and how seeking simplicity and letting go of the non-essential helped the company navigate during the pandemic. If everyone kept things simple, then everyone understands things more. He'll explain all of this, including the advice he's learned in more than three decades at the company. But first, he'll take us back to March 2020, when the pandemic took hold and the world stopped moving. You know, it wasn't always easy for us to keep stuff moving because there were quarantines for our pilots and there were different cities that put different lockdowns in place, which meant different things to even us. And typically we are considered an essential service. So we're able to keep going even on day one. But it was clear that the level of contact that we are having with our customers told us that we were amongst a few people that could really move things around and keep them going. And and that's why I said to all our teams last year, just honestly, team, if all we do this year is pick up and deliver to a normal level of service or an acceptable level of quality, then we've done everything we need to do because that is effectively you know, the purpose of, of DPDHL is the purpose of DHL Express. And if we don't do some of our other programs and initiatives, then so be it. But if we pick up and deliver material and keep trade moving and keep companies working, then we've done our bit because that's what everyone was trying to do. So to deliver under such extraordinary circumstances, what needed to be done differently? I think the best example is probably to do with our aviation side. And, and you know, I want to make it clear that in a network of 220 countries, I think 60 or 70 of them depended totally on the, the passenger airlines flying to move their goods around. In fact, I think 15% of all our shipments move at least on one sector on a passenger um, commercial airline sector. So when these all parked up, I think the biggest thing we had to do differently is 
consider where our 300 aircraft were and make sure they were really in the right place at the right time. And what I mean by that is in February, March last year, it was all about moving PPE and stuff into China. And this is the fascination of global trade. But within a month, it was about moving the PPE from China to the world. And that really lasted nearly three months. So the, the extent to which China makes protection equipment and and medical equipment is just extraordinary. And you can imagine that much of that is volumetric, shields, masks, very light, but very sizable in the time t- type of space that it takes up on an aircraft. So it was really about doing things differently. It was really about recognizing there was no commercial airlift, understanding that everything we moved would be on our own planes, which is not typical, and making sure that we are moving those aircraft tails around to suit the extraordinary nature to which global trade had changed geographically. And then secondly, I would say the biggest difference was just staying in extremely high levels of contact with our people. It was a case of same storm, different boat, but many people weren't coping with this in society in the same way as other people were. So it was about just staying connected. We're all working from home in many senses. So the the ability to just get on the phone and talk to people and check what was going on was extraordinarily important in terms of understanding what was happening in every country, lockdown, our own people's health, everything. And then as a management team, making sure we were making decisions quickly on the basis of that. Was there a moment where you thought, I'm not sure how this is going to get done? I mean, it gets done, but it's a moment where you know the rules have changed. Can you take us through that? You know, four weeks in when, um, you know, we went through the biggest dip we ever had. And then within two weeks later, we went through the biggest spike we ever had. We started to realize that as lockdowns, that this is just a different operating environment. We said as a management team, instead of meeting once a month, we need to meet twice a week. Any information you got that was older than a week was like a cave painting. It was completely useless. There were many moments where we think, oh, we've got through this, we can relax a bit. And then no sooner was there another government edict or a lockdown or something. So the ability to look around the corner time and time and time again over the last 13 months is very important. You know, I always say it takes 66 days for a habit to form. Within a couple of months, we were in, a, in our stride and in our momentum really on this. And, you know, we we're getting pretty good at it. And, um, you know, I'd said, I've said many times, our people got us through the ash cloud crisis in Iceland. People think, well, why do you mention that, John? Wasn't that quite a small thing? Iceland, well, no, it wasn't. At that time, no aircraft were flying over Europe for a month. Can you imagine that? That was actually a very big thing in March 14 or March 10. There's two, actually, one in March 10, one in March 14. The people got us through that. They got us through the financial crisis in 08, 09. And we realized that our people would get us through this, and they absolutely did. And 18 months into it, I can say that you know nothing keeps me awake at night because if our people got us through this, which is the biggest thing since 1918, then they can get us through anything, quite mm-hmm. frankly. As a manager, was there any one of these crises that was really sort of instrumental in preparing you for COVID? I think the ash cloud crisis is just amazing how I saw our people working as one to create contingency, move from the sky to the ground, 
what could we achieve on a truck as opposed to an aircraft? One goes slower than the other. In fact, there is a great screenshot of Radar 24 of only one night, only two aircraft in the sky above Europe, and they were both DHL tails. So I think the ability for our people to come together, that really happened and shaped me a little bit. The other time was when I was in Saudi Arabia during the Gulf War. DHL, Saudi Arabia stayed open throughout that whole process uh, from start to finish. In the first Gulf War, I was managing the business there. And I think all of those things, you know, um, shape you. And how are you different at the end of these crises? My natural form of defense is actually to stay calm. I know I'm at my most effective when I'm listening. I think two ears, one mouth use them in that proportion. You cannot learn anything when you're speaking by implication. You're saying something that you know. So I believe in listening more than speaking. I believe that if we listen to our frontline people and we listen to our managers and we talk to those people in those 220 countries, you know, I think a quick decision is a bad decision. We have to make a view. I don't believe in fictional deadlines or People say someone needs to know by Wednesday. I go, who needs to know by Wednesday? You know, it's nonsense in most cases. Very few people will come to me and ask how a hub works or the technical nature of some of these topics. But I think, you know, judgment becomes more and more important the more senior you get. And and displaying that 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 judgment, I, I like the phrase, went to an event one day with Norman Schwarzkopf. And, you know, in the last five minutes, someone said, just give me something to take away. And the commander of the chief, um, the Joint Allied Forces, um, he said, the best piece of advice I could give you is to take charge and do what's right. And I really like that because the take charge was very clear what you meant. It was, it was if something's on your desk, on your watch, it's you. You know, you should know whether that's your decision to make and make it and get on with it. Then do what's right. It's slightly more opaque, I suppose. But do what's right is, you know, if someone needed not to be terminated or moved out of their job, just do what's right by the person, do what's right by the business, do what's right by the brand, do what's right by the customer, and do what's right by our people. And we we, we use that a lot in, in COVID because every time we may, may had a discussion, let's say, should we furlough our people? Well, how long is this going to last? In the financial crisis, we laid everyone off and then we spent the next 12 months getting them all back. So we chose in DHL Express not to lay off basically no people because we're pretty sure that it would be short-lived in one way or another. And having been through the Gulf War and various other things, every crisis is actually good for business in the sense people need to move things. So um, I think those would be the things that I would say, did it change me or what characteristics were most important during this time? Because 107,000 people in DHL Express were worrying, will I, leave, will I lose my job? You know, their wife or husband had already lost their job. One or two of their kids had lost their job. And it was like, well, will I lose mine as well? And you could really see how this was playing out in families and communities. So our job was to say, you're safe, you're secure. Let's just crack on with stuff. And people really, really valued and appreciated that security. You mentioned listening, and I think plenty of people think that they're listening, but you and I both know that that's not always the case. Um, is there a framework or questions people can ask themselves to make sure that they're focusing on the right things? I think that's you know, that's a difficult one. I think, you know, the theme for our, our meeting this year was, um, you know, more connected than ever. We weren't flying all around the world. We're having less meetings than we would ever have. Many of us were working from home. I said to 
you know, folks, don't just sit there doing email and being more caught up on email than you've ever been before. Spend the time to ring people. You know, we invited, I remember in South Africa, 100 customers to a webinar and 110 joined because they wanted to know what was happening with customs in Nigeria. They wanted to know whether Mauritius was on lockdown. They wanted to know whether they could export things from here to there. And the, the extent to which the, the level of customer intimacy was extraordinarily high over the last 15 months. I found it even with myself connecting with people in jobs far bigger than mine. And uh, the extent to which they were available and wanting to talk was totally uncharacteristic and, and to use that awful phrase, unprecedented. But I, I think that was the modus operandi, if you will, and the method by which we um, sought to get get through this. We didn't rational, we didn't radically change our business in any other way, putting aside the aviation comments. We just stuck with our four pillars, motivated people, driving service quality, creating customer loyalty, and delivering our profitable network. And I say for those whose memory isn't that good, I say we have three letters, P equals GQ people equal growth and quality. So if we keep the people at the center of everything we do, then really quality, which is the driver of growth, so quality is a leading indicator, growth is a lagging indicator, it just takes care of itself. It's simplifying things, but not dangerously so. And we found that that simple little formula, so our entire strategy can be written on one page. And if a supervisor in Melbourne can play that two minutes back to me, which they can, then you know our job is sort of done in a way, but they'll never play back a hundred-page strategy booklet because they haven't got time to remember it or time to read it even. So DHL has a unique certified program, and when I talked to folks to prepare for this conversation, it was a real source of pride. And I, I want you to tell us a little bit about what that is, but also why it's effective, and let everybody in on why you carry those special passports around. In 2008, we decided to exit the U.S. domestic market. So we're big and great in, and we're big and great out, but we don't play domestically with the two great companies, Federal Express and UPS. And we exited that business, hook, line, and sinker, in 2008. And when we exited that, we, we sort of said to ourselves, well, we better be really, really good at international in and international out. So the name Certified International Specialist was to make sure all our U.S. people, many of which came from the domestic airborne world or domestic DHL, made them international specialists. It's all, you know, in this little passport here, the Certified International you know, Specialist. And I've got my stickers, I've got my notes in my passport, and all the 107,000 people have got these, which indicates the extent to which they've been trained on or developed on or learnt about aspects of our business, customer service sticker right there. And then when it met with so much success as a cultural and a sort of topic of identification and, and ownership and accountability, we rolled it out globally. So every country has its own involvement and with the program and every single person in every single country has it and everyone carries one and knows it. And what kinds of trainings and specializations can they track with their passports? Well, there's, there's certification just about every aspect of our business, a hub working in a hub, working in a gateway, working customer service, IT programs, etc. But the one I'd pick upon, which I think is so important in every country, is supervisory, the supervisory level. 
supervisors are the first level of management and they manage the people typically that answer the phones in hotels, work in hotels, work in banks, work in airlines, work on the front line of DHL, couriers, customer service, accounts receivable. They have a span of control of one to 10 or one to 20 people. It is often their first level uh, of seniority and leadership. And they're a little bit like uh, the pinch in an egg timer, the middle of the egg timer that you know they need to communicate upwards to senior management what's going on. And they need to communicate top level messages down to the front line. And so they need this innate capability of communication because they're communicating to different people in fact i think it's you know and I, I say this carefully but it's the most important slice of our organization in the sense that they lead and look after the entire front line of our company and people leave companies because they don't have good bosses is my experience so if we give people a good boss they have a better day they drive home in a better mood they're better with their family. They're better with society. They do more at the weekend. There's less anxiety and mental health issues. And the whole circle is better. If people have a better boss and they know what they're doing at work and they're valued. So supervisory is one of the programs in this little red book. And it's for every single supervisor. And they graduate after 18 months and they throw their mortarboard in the air just as they would if they left university. And quite frankly, it's on some occasions the most emotional and proud moment that uh, our 10,000, 11,000 supervisors ever experience in their working life. And what sort of topics do these trainings cover for supervisors? It, it covers um, coaching, the concept of feedback and how to give feedback, both motivational feedback and developmental feedback. I would bring out as the, you know, as lots of more subtle aspects of leadership that are part of those programs that they pick up in the online and face-to-face -face training over that 18 months. But I'd rather stop, stop at two and, and have people remember coaching and feedback. Because if that's done in a constant and, and positive and ongoing cycle, those aspects have the, the most valuable um, impact on our front line and on their um, way in which they see their, their working day or their working night in our case. If you didn't have this program, what would happen? I mean, you have it for 12 years, but if you had to get rid of it, how would DHL be different? Oh, wow. Wow. I just can't imagine it. You know, we always had some level of, you know, supervisory training and coaching going on. But, you know, I, I remember my days in Australia in 1993. Oftentimes the supervisor, the person that got the supervisor was the guy that maybe told the best joke or had the best personality or was the best at sports and they were lifted up. And some of them didn't even know they didn't want to be a supervisor. So it's a really good question, actually. I just cannot imagine a world where, uh, you know, many organizations have invested heavily in supervisory, but, but many haven't recognized that that slice of the organization is most important. That is not discretionary spend as far as we're concerned. The investment we have in, uh, in certified, you know, passport to success and supervisory within that is considerable and it's not considered discretionary and no one country in DHL or no one region would ever stop that of their, of their own accord. I want to return to the, the pride issue uh, because it strikes me that so many company training programs are really just something that you 
sort of trudge through and get through. What are the factors that unlock that sense of pride in people? Yeah, that's another great question. So I think two two things, I'm a great believer that hit on two big things rather than list 13 little things. I think the two big things is the authenticity of the program and the fact that the leadership, senior, middle, and junior, and supervisory, take part in uh, the facilitation. So everyone's been through it. It's a program for everyone, facilitated sort of by everyone. And, you know, right now we're going through something in the same way that our pilot countries, South Africa and Netherlands and Dubai and New Zealand and East Midlands hubs and Brazil, I think all six, there's six of them, uh, are doing. So we're doing the leadership team of my leadership team of six, seven people is doing the same thing. Um, and then we'll facilitate the training. So the fact that we do that, I think, is just seen disproportionately even bigger than than you would would think it would be. And we know how most training is rolled out in most companies, including DHL, before certified, and how it is seen as a bit of a distraction. And the second thing I'd say is we we celebrate um, the successes in a big way. So the graduation ceremony for supervisory is a day and a half, of which the last two hours is just like graduating out of a, a mainstream university, and the leadership team are present and available at all of those events. And then celebrating just the passport signing at our at our year beginning kickoff meeting, what we call the kickoff meeting, at our employee of the year meetings, which are all big physical gatherings. I'll find 300 of these in my hotel room and uh, be just signing, well done, if it was employee of the year or, or putting a, an appropriate message. Even the soccer tournaments that we have, people bring these to and we just sign, you know, great soccer tournament, whatever. So I think and the fact that we say never lose it, I've been told anecdotally that people have got into countries in it, but I don't believe that, but um, it is just like a real passport. Could you ever have imagined it would be treated this way, that people would bring it to company soccer tournaments? Could you imagine that when it started? With Certified, you know, we, we kicked it off. We had no expectations of it other than that we would launch it properly. And we believe in this concept of repetition, repetition, repetition. Just keep saying the same things a hundred times. Never apologize for saying the same thing. Because if one person out of 107 doesn't know that thing, 107,000 doesn't know that thing, then you've got to say it again until they do. So it's like this four pillars, three letters and a passport. You know, it's it's so repetitive, It's but it's not boring. And um, I only want people to remember little things because little things and one-liners, nothing basic about the basics, nothing common about common sense. You know, feel sick to your stomach if you lose a customer. Feel sick to your stomach if you lose a shipment. Little things go a, a long way. And uh, we never knew how big it would be, but by the end of year two or year three, we're pretty sure that we would never stop it. So I have a different version of my last question. Uh, say if you didn't have certified in place, would you have been able to execute at the level that you did during COVID? You're hitting on the big topics here. You know, I think certified and supervisory was written for, for COVID. I, I, the way I look at it was I often ask myself, which is the same question in effect, if this had happened in 2009 or 2010, 2008, before the current strategy and leadership team 
were put in place, I think it would have been a very different different outcome. We, another phrase in DHL is as one. The, the way in which working in a unified way with the business having an ego, but individuals not having an ego creates the best possible result. And the extent to which I've seen collaboration and partnership and people getting in touch to solve big, gnarly, thorny issues is very much an as-one mentality. It's part of certified. It's part of the culture of, of DHL Express more now than before. And I think we would have got through it because DHL has always been a great people company with a lot of passion, a lot of energy, but I, we wouldn't have got through it in the same way. I, I really don't believe so. Can you tell us a little bit about the Connectedness Index? Yeah, so, um, well, we're very lucky to come across uh, New York University's Stern School of Business. Yeah, no better partner to do this with than them in terms of their faculty and, and how they understood this world of connectedness. It's been in place for um, close to a, a decade, getting that way anyway. And for those that are a little bit less initiated, the connectedness of countries on the dimensions of trade, people movement, services, and money, capital. So it measures sort of four in a very complex uh, fashion uh, across millions of data points, but articulates it in a way that there's something for government, there's something for business, there's something for everyone in terms of understanding how a country is or is not connected and in what extent it's connected and to what extent is it domestically strong or internationally strong. And it's simple enough that, you know, strategies are then born out of, of that. And, you know, I think the, the, the biggest, you know, outcome for me and take out for me is how strong global trade is and how much it, it, it um, endured during the pandemic, how resilient it was and how long it took or how short how quickly it was before trade was back at the the prior year. And, you know, so if I'm honest, the dimension of those four that I'm most interested in is the movement of trade, uh, more so than the movement of people, services and money, But because that's what we do, the experts in in exports. It's a hackneyed phrase, I know, but I, I say time and time again that global trade is too big to fail. I have, you want, you want, I have. People love selling and buying and breaking and repairing and doing all these things. And that is people's innate sense of commerce and uh, industriousness and, and trying to improve their own lot or their company's lot or their country's lot. So COVID is still wrecking havoc on jobs and on lives. And I know we've heard our share of predictions over the past year, but what will surprise people? about the impact that trade and globalization can have when it comes to moving forward and sort of bouncing back from all of this? Yeah, what I think people will be surprised about is the extent to which economies bounce back. Supply chains won't, in fact, change very much. I think it's extraordinarily different to change your supply chain, uh, primary suppliers, secondary suppliers. You might say, I don't want anything from Asia. I want to get it locally. Well, the things you get locally may come from Asia uh, as a secondary supplier. So they're very, they're very difficult to change. And supply chains are built on efficiency and economics. And those two things have served supply chains well for a decade. 
And I heard everyone saying after the ash cloud and the ice cloud, we're going to get everything made in London or everything made in France. Well, it is just simply not practical in all cases. There may be some extremely important parts or some high value parts, which people uh, source more locally. But I really think that, you know, the the complexity of changing supply chains and the way that they actually deliver upon what people need very effectively means that we won't see a lot of supply chain rationalization. I think things will carry on because, as I say, business heals and the the balloon reinflates as quickly as people are allowed, uh, enabled to allow it to. What is the next big challenge that DHL will be tackling? I think there are two or three things we're really thinking about now. The pandemic is definitely front and center in our minds still. But what I call the post-pandemic window, the PPW, as I've come to sort of name it, you know, let's say it's January 1. Hopefully it's January 1, 2022. What does the, the world look like without sounding too dramatic in January 22? How much surge will we see? That brings me to e-commerce. There are many people that said, let's not have an office in the city. Let's just just trade online. E-commerce is um, is an enduring mega trend, and we've got to be ready for that. B2B online, businesses not selling through trade fairs, businesses not selling maybe through a dealer network, people not sending their people on planes to sell and market their product. That B2B online capability and companies that are creating a net-a-porter or a Farfetch or an Amazon or an ASOS experience, but selling to other businesses rather than business to consumers. And then peak season. You know, we used to say peak season was Black Friday till December 24. Well, now we're in our 13th, 14th, 15th month of a peak season. What will the real peak season in October, November, December of this year be like if e-commerce continues to be as it is and business is bouncing back? And how will we be able to manage that from a lift and a capacity and an aviation point and absolutely get to the point where we celebrate, go home and celebrate Christmas, have our Christmas lunch, knowing that there isn't one shipment on the floor in a facility that's undelivered. And we really need to be ready for peak, the real peak this year, because it will be the mother of all peaks. And then, as I say, we're thinking about next year and how will we be in the best position to pick up and move shipments, which is trade, effectively. And that is, you know, our our strategy is called the focus strategy. It's about taking things off the list, not putting things on the list. It's the concept of one, two, three, many. And it's just understanding every single thing that we need to be good at, what the hedgehog principle is, the focus on what it is absolutely you're passionate about, what you're best what you're best at, what you were created to do and be the best in the world at that. And that is time definite international, TDI, the time definite international movement of goods. And if we focus on that and we focus on moving things and being ready for these surges, fidget spinners when they came out as a craze, you know, everyone sort of saw them in the shops, but they never thought where they came from and how they got there. And that created massive demand out of China for about six weeks. These things really play out and we need to be ready for them. Otherwise, they can create massive backlogs, massive transit time issues and massive quality issues. So that's what we need to think about, just being great at what we do. And if something else has to be a little bit late, something other programs have to be a little bit delayed, then, then as I said, so be it. Is there a book that you recommend? 
Well, any Jack Reacher, Lee Child novel, absolutely, because uh, one way of managing um, stress and anxiety is just to take your mind off things. I can recommend um, Grief, The Thing That Has Feathers by Max Porter. And uh, my old boss, Ken Allen, wrote a book called Radical Simplicity. The book is a sort of a little bit about him, but half about DHL and half about keeping business simple. And if everyone kept things simple, then everyone understands things more and everything is, everyone is a lot more focused. You know, you say that we must keep the customer at the center of everything we do. And my view is yes, but I really believe we have to have our people at the center of everything we do. Because if we have that, everything else will follow. And maybe the center is big enough for people and customer. You've been at DHL for 35 years. What's the most important thing that you've learned? You've got to let go of some things. You can't fix everything. And I give that as advice, you know, know what to let go of in business and know what to really champion and go for. You'll only ever be known for a few things. So don't try and do a hundred because someone will know you for nothing, but just focus on a few things and do them well. That was John Pearson. Before we go, don't forget Meet the Leader's sister podcast, Radio Davos, helping you understand the biggest problems of our time. Find the latest episode of That and Meet the Leader on wef.ch slash podcasts. That's it for me. Thanks so much to Gareth Nolan and Robin Pomeroy for all of their help with the creation of Meet the Leader. And my thanks go out to this week's guest, John Pearson. Please take a moment to rate and review our podcasts. And for more extensive Q&As from our guests, go online to wef.ch slash podcasts and follow us online on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, and on Twitter using the handle WEF. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day. <laughs>